Am I on? Okay, good. <laughs> that wasn't awkward. Okay. We are, uh, I want to welcome everybody out this morning. Welcome to those watching online and listening online. And we are still in our uh, study of the book of James called our Faith Series. Uh, and uh, I'm going to give you a really brief recap. I've been trying to do that every week. Um, so uh, James was the author of this epistle, and, and uh, James was the half-brother of Jesus. Um, he was writing to all the Jews who had converted to Christianity who were scattered throughout uh, Palestine. Uh, and they were under severe persecution. Everybody was persecuting them. I could go through the list, but just believe me, everybody was persecuting them. Uh, and so James was writing to basically encourage them and tell them to stand strong and kind of teach them how to do that. Now, today, uh, James is going to discuss the internal spiritual conflicts and struggles uh, these readers were having, that these people were having. Uh, and this letter has been, uh, it's been informative. I mean, the entire letter's been really informative. It's been really instructive. But it's also, I don't know if you guys have noticed, this letter's been kind of a spanking. You guys notice that? I mean, it kind of, it, James kind of goes after it here. I noticed that. I mean, don't take me wrong. There is a lot of encouragement. There is a lot of instruction in it. But uh, because these believers in these churches were so young, um, it was just requiring a lot of hard truths to get them brought back to line. He just had to make them face some hard truths. Uh, now, in chapters 4 and 5, uh, James had to deal with some, like, bad attitudes. We're going to see this as we move forward. Some bad attitudes and some poor leadership and uh, he has to deal with false teaching and behavioral issues and deal with things like laziness and, and greed uh, and worldly thinking and self-righteousness. So there's a lot of stuff he has to cover that there's really no nice way to cover. And so as a result, the next two chapters may kind of feel like you got sent to the principal's office. You know what I mean? And me included. When I'm preparing these, I'm thinking, wow, I don't do this well. You know what I mean? It just points out the things that we struggle with, right? All of us. Uh, so I titled this message, Sometimes the Truth Hurts. And the reason I did that is because sometimes the truth hurts. Now, I mean, as hard as it may be, uh, we have to realize that even though the truth hurts sometimes, we need it if we're going to grow. We, have, we need to know it and we need to accept it. So let's jump right in. James 4.1. Uh, starting in verse 1, it says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Remember, he's talking to believers and young churches these believers are involved in. Uh, is not the source of uh, the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. Now, evidently, I mean, obviously, or he wouldn't be writing this, but evidently, some of the believers in some of these churches that James was writing this epistle to was struggling with conflicts and quarreling. And that is a difficult thing to deal with, when, especially when you're a new believer and you find out, and when you're a new believer, you feel like everything is so golden at church. You know what I mean? And then you find out that, hey, churches are full of sinful humans. So there are going to be conflicts, there are going to be struggles, and you just have to accept that. But this was starting to become a problem, so he begins this by kind of asking a rhetorical question for teaching purposes, because he's trying to find out some things about them, and he's wanting them to find out some things about themselves. Now James wasn't writing this so he could get the latest drama and gossip from Palestine. That wasn't his purpose. You know, like, hey, so what's going on? That's not what he was doing, right? He really wanted these people to have this moment of introspection about their behavior and their worship and how they were running their churches and living their Christian lives. Now, as believers, we are really bad about blaming our struggles and conflicts on others. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, we, and it's getting worse. We, we really do. Uh, and I hear a lot of them. I'm just going to give you just a few examples. Uh, but you hear things like, well, the devil made me do it. You know, and you think that would be outdated or that would be a joke. But we still hear when somebody does something wrong, well, Satan's just been after me. I'm like, I don't think Satan had to pursue you as hard as you act like. You know what I mean? We always, always, always blame him for our sin. Now, the devil is evil, but I think he gets too much blame for our sin. I'm not his attorney or anything, but I'm just saying he gets too much blame for our sin. 
I mean, as people, the Bible tells us we are inherently evil. Okay, if you look at Jeremiah 17, 9, he says, the heart is more what? Deceitful. That's what kills me when people say, I just got to follow my heart. I'm like, I don't know if I do that, right? The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, the devil may offer temptations, but we're the ones that has to choose to give in to them. Okay, he's not all powerful like God. He's not, uh, and, you know, everywhere at all times like God is. He can't force us to do anything. He just offers up the temptation and, and we accept it, right? I mean, that's, that's how it works. So uh, James wanted his readers to know that, you know, their conflicts was internal, not external. He wanted them to realize that. And listen, most of the time, if you stop and check every conflict you're in, there is one common denominator with all the conflicts you're in. You. Just saying. Throwing that out there for free. Right? So, it's kind of funny how he does this. Because in the Greek, the pleasures that war, that wage war in your members literally translates to inner conflicts. It translates to inner conflicts. And I think that's really important. Because when we have these conflicts with other people... We like to make ourselves the victim. You ever notice that? Your kids never come home and say, my teacher got on to me and it was totally my fault. They ever do that? I got fired and, I mean, I get it. I guess I wasn't a good employee. <laughs> nobody does that. She left me, but, you know, she probably does need to find somebody better. <laughs> I mean, nobody does that. Right? We love to become the victim. And this society we live in kind of pushes victim mentality, Right? So James recognized that this was happening in his readers. They were doing the exact same thing. They were trying to make themselves the victim in every conflict. They were having all these conflicts. So he wanted to set the record straight by reminding them, let's first look at ourselves. Let's look at the common denominator, and let's see if there's a problem there. And that common denominator is you. Now, most inner conflicts are simply a war between our sin nature and the Holy Spirit that lives within us. That's what most of the conflicts arise out of. Because the Holy Spirit's telling us what to do, but we think we got a better idea. That's generally how those, those conflicts start, right? So James is going to discuss that at length in verse 2. Let's look at this. Because there's some real hard-hitting facts, some, I mean, just undeniable facts he's going to bring up here. Verse 2. He says, you lust and do not have. So you commit what? Murder. Murder. You are envious and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because what? You do not ask. Okay, we're not going name it, claim it here. Trust me on that one. I just wanted to, there's a reason he put this in here. Because what James was describing was, again, he's describing our sin nature. This is just, just, just attributes of our sin nature, right? And that had been a problem for humanity since creation. We have always had that battle, that sin nature in us. Remember, there was only two people alive on the earth when our sin nature became, you know, noticeable. God said, have, do anything you want, eat anything you want, use any tree you want. Just leave that one alone. And because we have a sin nature, we're going, oh, we've got to have that tree. That's the one we've got to have. The rest of these stink. That's the one we've got to have. Sin nature has been a problem since the very beginning. The Apostle Paul kind of dis discussed this struggle in detail in the book of Romans. So if you turn to Romans 7, starting in verse 14. And this, this sounds sick, <laughs> but these verses give me comfort. Because I don't know about you, the Apostle Paul is one of my favorite writers in the Bible. I love the Apostle Paul. And the things that he's done and the bravery that he's shown just amazes me. And I love his boldness. So when I hear that the Apostle Paul struggles like Chris does, it kind of made me feel, for some sick reason, better about myself. 
because this is the Apostle Paul, and he felt these, these struggles that we all feel. Uh, 7.14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, sold into bondage of sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. He said that because the Holy Spirit was dwelling in him. Uh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Okay, for the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil I do not want. But if I am doing the very things I, don't, I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. I mean, that's a lot of words. Paul was wordy. But basically he's saying, I don't get it. Why do I keep doing the things I know I shouldn't? I know I'm not supposed to do it. I tell myself I'm not going to do it. Yet here I am doing it. Anybody ever had that battle within yourself? Anybody? We all have struggles, traffic. Uh, road rage. I'm just saying, we all, have, we all have struggles, and you tell yourself, today I'm going to be a peaceable driver. Today I'm going to love my neighboring car, right? Today I'm not going to yell, and then I come to a four-way stop, and it blows it, just blows it, right? The other day, oh, don't, I'm going to get on a tangent. The other day I was driving down to see my mother-in-law, and there was two cars traveling side by side in a four-lane, you know, so the two lanes on this side both doing under the speed limit. And I'm like, it's, it's like a, a slow race to who can get there last. I don't know. And I was not spiritual enough to handle that. I'm just going to be honest with you. I literally took a picture of it and sent it to a friend of mine and said, I would like to punch people like this in the neck with brass knuckles. I said, That's your pastor. Thank you very much. But it's funny. We always say the things that we don't want to do are the things we do. That's our sin nature. That's that battle that we have within us. Right, that battle that everyone has. That's why self-righteousness has no place in the church, because it's just a lie. So Paul and James were both discussing that struggle, uh, those same struggles and those conflicts that we all face. Everybody faces them. And notice, almost all the struggles and conflicts James mentioned uh, are about two things. All right, They come down to two things, and those two things are pride and envy. I don't know about you, but I hate the pride in me. I hate it. And what does the world tell you? Be proud, right? Where's your pride? I'm like, oh, trust me, brother. Just watch for a few seconds. You'll see it. You know, I hate the pride in me because the pride in me makes me do things I know I shouldn't do. And not surprisingly, it's these things that cause almost all the quarrels that they have, right? It's not surprising that jealousy and envy are also a byproduct of that pride. If you're proud, jealousy and envy are going to be present within you also. And they were present within the people that James was writing to. The Bible repeatedly warns us about the danger of being proud, and for some reason, we still struggle with it massively. If you look at Proverbs 16, 18, it said, Pride goes before what? Destruction. Listen, and a haughty spirit, that means a prideful attitude, before stumbling. So there's nothing good that comes from pride, yet we're all infected with it, right? Now, in verse 2, James makes three bold statements that could easily be taken out of context. We're going to look at them. So in 4.2, he says, You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. So let's look at those. First, he said that um, their lust, because they lust for the worldly things, it causes them to commit murder. Okay, and this is really important. James was not talking about serial killer type murder. 
He wasn't talking about, I want what you have, so I'm going to kill you. That's probably happened in the past, but that's not what he was talking about. He wasn't talking about a physical murder. The murder that James was talking about here is what's called spiritual murder. Okay? And spiritual murder doesn't include taking a life. All right? Spiritual murder is when you gossip about or backbite people out of hatred or envy. That's what spiritual murder is. 1 John 3.15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a what? Murderer. Now, that, he wasn't saying everybody who hates his brother kills him, was he? No, he's saying everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So the thing we have to remember about spiritual murder, it comes from our mouth, and our mouth reveals what's in our heart. Okay, so the words we speak, we have to remember, they are powerful, and they can do some serious emotional damage. And we talked about the power of the tongue. Remember in James chapter 3, we talked about that. Remember, James just went off on a tangent about that. It has the poison of snakes under their tongue, and they're, you know, no one can tame it. It's bitter and full of deadly poison. And you know, he just went nuts about that because he's right. I mean, it can cause a lot of emotional damage. See, our gossip and our hateful speech can kill someone publicly and emotionally. I can't tell you how many rumors are started about people that aren't true. And you know what? For some reason, we like to believe those, don't we? How often do we actually give somebody the benefit of the doubt? We just like a good story. So a lot of times when you say something, if it gets out, you can really damage someone's public image. I mean, believe me, if you're a pastor, they're going to make up stories about you all the time. So you can't get hurt about it. Instead, you start rating them on a scale of 1 to 10 and laughing about them. You know, you hear one and go, oh, what a rookie. That's like a three. I've heard a lot better tales about me than that one. You know what I mean? There were so many. I don't even have time to tell you the stories made up about me. But if someone were to believe them, then they would spiritually be murdering me to the public. Right? And emotionally, sometimes you can say things that you just kill someone's self-confidence. You just kill someone's feeling of belonging. You kill someone feeling important by your words. And that is spiritually murdering them. Right? When people feel insufficient in an area, they often go on an attack. And that's what causes this to happen. When they're insufficient somewhere, they always want to attack someone else to make themselves feel better. If they feel like they're not attractive enough, they like to attack the people they think are. Right? And you can always tell. They'll go, she thinks she's so hot. We all know every bit of that's fake. Thank your doctor, honey. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's the kind of things people say. Because <laughs> they don't feel attractive enough, right? If they don't feel financially sufficient, they like to attack people who are. Sure, he's got money. I guess you can have that if you're willing to, you know, never love Jesus and avoid your family. And, you know, and I'm thinking, or he loves Jesus and God's blessing him. You know what I mean? But we attack him, right? Uh, right? I mean, if they... If they don't feel important enough, they like to attack people they feel like are important enough. You know, oh, he thinks he's so important. He's only there because he's cheated and lied his way to the top. Do you recognize this stuff? This is that bitter envy inside of all of us that makes us attack people. And when you're talking about people like that, when you're having conflicts with people about things like that, you've got to stop and say, the problem isn't them. The problem is me. Because I'm supposed to have the heart of Christ. I'm supposed to love everyone, even if they are making mistakes, even if they are doing things wrong. I'm supposed to love them. I shouldn't hate someone or show hatred toward them in my speech just because they have something I want and don't have. Now, the reason people do that and have that mentality is because they've adopted this worldly set of priorities. See, and as believers, we, you know, our priority should be about seeing God's will accomplished. That's what our priority should be. 
Because when God is our priority, he makes sure that all the things we, that we need and some of the things we want that will be helpful to us, he makes sure we have them. He provides it. God isn't asking you to give up stuff. He's saying, let me give you what will actually help you. Because most of the things we want, we shouldn't have. Or we're going to do damage in our life. Look at this, Matthew 6.31. He says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink uh, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, this is unbelievers, eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you, speaking to believers, need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, what? Will be added to you. He's saying, listen, don't do God's job for him. You're going to end in frustration. And you're going to fight with other people over something God would have taken care of. Listen, God knows what you need. He'll provide it. He knows the things you want that will be good for you and good for others. And he'll provide that too. All he asks is, just trust me. Can you imagine if your kids, when they're three and four years old, are worried about where they're going to get their clothes or worried about where they're going to get their meal? You just look at them and say, hey, I'm your mom. I'm your dad. I love you. I'm going to make sure you have what you need. And, you know, on your birthdays and Christmas and some special occasions, I'm going to give you things you don't need, but you want, and I know it won't hurt you or hurt anybody else. We want to provide for our own, don't we? Well, listen, God wants that too, but we just refuse to trust him. So if we believe God knows all things, then trusting his provision shouldn't be such a struggle for us, but we buy into the world that we need to get what we can get ourselves. You know, actually, I think our mindset should be, instead of always looking at what you don't have, we should be thanking him and praising him every day for everything we do have. Thanking him for not allowing us to fall victim to our greed and the distractions that come from the things of the world that we think we need. Right? We should be thanking him and praising him for that every day. You know, if you stop worrying about what you don't have and look around your house, you will find a million things to be thankful for. If you stop and just look and see what you have, you have a million things to be thankful for. Now, I see believers... All the time with bad priorities. I just see it, and, and I see the conflict that comes with it. For example, here's something I see like the, you know, how it degrades quickly from when someone first believes. I'm going to explain this to you, okay? Uh, when someone first believes, and they start getting involved by you know, serving God, whether it be in church or ministry or whatever, I love their humility and their passion. I just love it, because they're so excited. They just, they just want to do something good. I, I just love that, before the devil has too much time to destroy them. And they're excited, and they just have the desire to learn, and they're so teachable, and they're like, show me what to do, I'll, I'll do anything. I remember when I first got saved, I'm not kidding you, I wanted to do anything, and they didn't want to give me a job, <laughs> because I think they knew my old reputation. They were probably in, in on that bet that I wouldn't make it three months that was going around when I first got saved. So I was dying to have something to do, and finally, you might laugh, but finally they said, okay, we need somebody to take care of cleaning up after we have dinners and stuff. So taking out the trash, digging in the trash for kids who lose their retainers was, part, you know, retainers was part of that job. Ew. But when they gave me that job, I will never forget, I felt like I was just elected president of the United States. I came home and I'm like, yeah, want to know who you're looking at? I'm the guy that makes sure everything's taken care of, sanitation-wise. <laughs> That's me. Notice how clean everything is? There's a guy that takes care of that, and his name is this guy. You know, I was so excited. I was a trash man. That's what the job was. Take the trash, I'll clean up the messes. But I just was so excited, and I, I love seeing that humility. And back then, I was a sponge. They used to hate me, I think, at Bible study classes. Because I think a lot of them just wanted to teach a lesson and go to Pizza Hut. 
And they would say something and realize I was, I didn't know anything about the Bible. I was 22 and knew nothing. There were kids that had been in Sunday school for two years that dwarfed me in biblical knowledge. And so they would say something, everybody would be like, yeah, amen. I'm like, oh, yes, Chris. What does that mean? Well, it means this. Why? And they'd look it up, and it would be a 10-minute conversation. They're like, okay, let's move on. Then they start talking five minutes later. Oh, and they're going. You know, they tried not to look at me. I noticed that. They'd be like, anybody got anything? Anybody got anything over here? You know? Because I wanted to know, I had so much passion, and I see that in people when they first become believers. But after they get some time under their belt, that often starts to fade away. And it's sad, you can start seeing it, because the devil starts telling them, you're insignificant. You don't matter. Look, if they thought anything of you, you'd be doing something important. They'd probably think you're a joke. Yeah, don't ask for that job. You've been saved, what, a year? You need to do something to prove to them that you are worthy. And he just starts whispering in their ears, right? And so all of a sudden, they start desiring positions. Not just any positions, they want big positions. Positions that come with a lot of praise. What they don't realize is the positions that come with praise comes with three times more conflict. Trust me on that, okay? And you start wanting titles, right? And you start wanting authority. All things they're probably not ready for yet, right? And soon, they don't want to answer to anyone. Soon, they want to be an authority. They don't want to learn from anybody, right? And instead of pursuing God and letting God guide them, now they're pursuing personal recognition and pride. I see it all the time. I see it all the time. Listen, uh, an old preacher told me one time, he said, listen, you want to be a good leader, the first thing you got to learn is you got to learn to be under before you can ever be over. He said, when you get good at being under, you'll be great at being over. I will never forget that. And it is so... So true, right? And because as soon as they start thinking you know everything, and a lot of times they feel that way, as soon as you get in that part, when you think you know everything, not only are you delusional, but you're done growing. You will never get smarter than you are right now. Listen, there are times I still learn every day, and I I learn from every level of Christianity. There are sometimes new Christians will come up to me with just an epiphany that their fresh eyes saw that I didn't see, and I'm open to that because I want to learn. Right? If you think you know everything, you are done learning. Now, sadly, they start thinking that, you know, since they know more than everyone, you know, they don't need to grow anymore. And then it ends up being uh, just this lust and envy for what everybody else has. And, and the next thing you know, they're talking bad about people. Just like James said, you lust and don't have, so you murder. This, they start talking bad about people, right? And inevitably, they come, they turn out just like the warning James is trying to give his readers here. They turn out just like that right? And it's tough. You know, here's the trick to making people, the enemy uses, to making people stop growing, to making people uh, get in more conflicts. It's called discontentment. If he can make you discontent, he can own you. He can destroy you, right? Now, here's the other thing I never understood. The more we learn, sometimes we start learning for the wrong reasons. And if you would have told me that when I first got saved, I'd say, that's impossible. How can you learn about the Bible for the wrong reasons? It doesn't make any sense. But it absolutely can't happen. We can start learning for the wrong reasons. You know, we should be studying so we can get closer to God, get to know Him better, have a better personal walk with Him so that we can, we should read so that we can impact the lives of others with the Word of God so that we can learn to evangelize. Those are the reasons we should be reading and studying. But instead, here's some of the things that happen. We start studying to show everybody how smart we are, right? And 
that's a bad motive, right? That's a bad reason for studying, to try to impress people with how smart you are. Then we start studying to defend our theology or our denomination. When you get to that part, ugh. Have you ever met those people? They never want to talk about Jesus. They want to talk about whether they're a Baptist or Pentecostal or Catholic or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, you do realize when you get to heaven, none of those titles will be there. Here's the titles that will be there when you get to heaven. Covered by the blood or not. Did you trust my son or not? None of that other stuff matters, but we, we study to, to defend those things. We think we have the right to become the soldier that defends our theology. And we study to try to learn how to win theological and political arguments. Have you ever met the Christian that just wants to argue all the time? If you haven't met them, you can go on you know, social media and find them. You know what I mean? They're all, they always try to pull me into that stuff. Constantly trying to, they, they, oh, so-and-so wants you to friend his group. I read a little bit about it, and I'm like, nope. That is an argument site. You know, and unbelievers are looking at it going, yeah, scroll past that page. That's a bunch of dumb Christians fighting over stupid stuff. That's what they do. I'm just being honest. That, that's not why we're doing this, not why we read. In the end, if, we don't be, if we're not careful about why we're studying, we're going to have conflict in our life all the time, and eventually we'll become as judgmental and condescending as the world we live in, and that's a shame. And this is what James was trying to prevent. Now, in verse 3, James explains how the attitude, uh, that attitude can carry, uh, can carry over into your prayer life. Verse 4, 3, he says, You ask and do not receive, because you ask with what? Wrong, Wrong motives, so that you may spend them on what? On your pleasures. Okay? Now, again, this is all about the effects of pride and the results of having worldly priorities. It's, just, it's the same story, just different way. See, when we pray... It's kind of strange. When we pray, our, you know, we don't pray like we should because our selfishness gets in the way of our spirituality when we pray. That, that's the problem, right? Um, we want God to do things our way, and we want him to do them our way right away. It sounds like a Burger King commercial, but that's kind of what we want, right? We treat God kind of like a Walmart grocery pickup. That's how we treat him, because we want to make our order and while we're waiting, we're expecting God to agree with our order and put all of our items in the cart. And then we like to go and pick up everything that God put in our cart, and we hope he doesn't question why. That's what a lot of our prayer lives is about. But if God doesn't fill our order exactly as we ordered it, we get angry at him. I never, ever understood that. If God doesn't do what we want to do, we get angry. You know, I, I'll, I'll talk about that. And what's sad is, we always get angry when we don't get what we want, but we rarely give God a second thought and pray to Him at all until we need something or want something. Most of the time, we don't even give Him a chance to be a part of our life. Can you imagine being in a marriage where the only time they addressed you is if they wanted something or needed something from you? Never just sat down and talked. Some of you are going, I am in that. No, I'm just kidding. But listen, I'm just saying, you know, the marriage wouldn't last that long. Right? Because you, you want to have a personal relationship with them. You don't, don't want to be an ATM for them, right? Well, you know, that's kind of how we treat God. We don't want anything to do with them until we're in trouble. And then we judge our whole opinion on God about what he did when we were in trouble or in need. You know, if we'd have been praying and, and, and reading and, and trying to grow closer to God the entire time, we'd probably understand why he's saying no and why he didn't step in. Right? The truth is, we should be talking to him every day about everything. We should be praising for everything we already have. We never even consider the fact that God may say no because what we want isn't what's best for us. Listen, parents, 
How many times has your nine-year-old come up and said, I want a 125 dirt bike? And you're like, I know that sounds like a great idea. And I know you watch them on TV and they look awesome. But I'm not going to get you one. Because you'll get killed. You're too young to ride one of those. And they walk away mad at you and pouting and don't want to. That's us when God says no. And often he's saying no for the same reasons. It's not something we need at that moment. It's just not something we need. So he says no. Right? But we never even consider that God might be saying no because it's not going to help us. It's not going to help us. There's a lot of things we think we need that we really don't. There's a lot of things that happen in our lives for a reason. And I'll explain more of those as we get, go through this message. But the problem is when God says no, we don't take it. We, don't, we refuse to accept that. When God says no, we say, okay, I'll find a way to do it myself. I'll find a way to do it myself. How's that end, fellas? Does that, does that end well? When you try to do it yourself, it always ends up in a train wreck when we try to do it ourselves. Now, I found that if God won't give me what I'm asking for, I just stop asking. Because I assume there's a reason he doesn't want me to have it. I know he loves me. If he says no, there's a reason. I still don't know why, you know, he hasn't given me season tickets to the Steelers games on the bottom row. I've been praying for a long time. I just figure God knows he doesn't want me to miss that many Sundays or something. I don't know. But there's reasons. And when he doesn't answer my prayer, eventually I'll just say, okay, I'm done. I got to find out why you don't want me to have this, right? I've also found when God doesn't get me out of a problem, there's probably something he wants me to learn in that problem. And he's saying, I'm not going to get you out of that until you learn everything there is to learn. Because if I pull you out early, you're just going to be there again. So instead of crying and whining about your situation, how about you try to figure out what in that situation I want you to learn? Oh, if I, I could tell you a million stories about that. I could tell you a million, million stories about that. But if we ask for something and God says no, it, it's usually for one of two very important reasons. Either because we don't need it or because if we have it, it might destroy us or destroy somebody else. That's usually the reasons. And I'm going to give you some examples. People get mad if God doesn't give them the relationship they want. You guys remember the song by Garth Brooks, ironically, just had a concert in South Bend? Unanswered Prayers. You guys remember that? Isn't that true? How many times have you prayed your guts out for somebody, it didn't happen, and later on you see the train wreck of a life they have, and you're like, thank you, Jesus, I didn't marry that person. Right? They've been divorced six times, and I'd have been number five. Anyway, you know, sometimes God says no in the relationship because the relationship's not good for you. You don't see it now. He does. How about trusting him for being God and just walk away from it? People get mad if they don't get the job or the raise or position they've been praying for. God must be mean. Or God knows that that's going to take more time than you have to give. Or God knows you have a child at home that's struggling or in rebellion and he needs more of you. More than you need more money. He needs more love from his mother, more love and attention from his father than he needs more money to go on fruitless vacations and things like that when the whole time he's going to be mad and rebellious anyway. Sometimes God's saying, no, I don't want you to have that. Not because I don't want you to have more money, because I want you to have more love for your children and grow them like I gave them to you for. You know, that sometimes we've got to think of that. Here's the most common one, and I'm probably going to sting a few people here, but James stung me first. But people get mad when a loved one is dying or dies. We get mad at God. We blame God. First of all, there's something really important that we need to remember. God did not bring death into the world. He didn't bring death into the world. Listen to this. Again, this is Paul, Romans 5, 17. 
He says, for if by the transgression of the one, though that's a, not a capital O, so it's talking about Adam, death reigned through uh, the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, notice it's capitalized, Jesus Christ. Verse 18, verse 18 so then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there, is, there resulted justification of life to all men. The one act of transgression there was when they transgressed in the garden. The one act of righteousness was when Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross. Verse 19. For as through one man's disobedience, which is Adam, uh, the many will be, be made, the many will, were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, capitalized Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Okay, so this is really, really important. Mankind brought sin into the world, and death is the result of sin. People die not because of God, but because we brought sin into the world. And people say, that's not fair. Adam did it. You'd have done it too. I've heard guys talk trash about Eve forever. How many people have heard guys talk trash about Eve? Raise your hand. Ladies, don't be shy. Come on now. You know they blamed it on Eve forever, right? I heard an old guy one time say this. He said, uh, somebody was saying, well, I can't believe that he just ate something that she handed to him. He should have thought. He should have known that God didn't want to. He should have stood up. The guy said, well, first of all, she was naked. As far as I'm going with that. Second of all, it's not as hard as you think. And they go, I don't know. And he said, well, my daughter put that to the test. He said her husband was going on and on about how he would have never taken a bite of the fruit. So she let it settle for a week. And she made a pie. And the smell went out the window to her husband. Her husband walks in. Didn't even ask what kind it was. She takes the fork of it, holds it up, holds it to his mouth. He takes a bite, and she goes, see how easy that was. <laughs> Any one of us who would have been there would have done the same thing. And that's what brought death into the world, right? God didn't bring death into the world. He brought solution to death, Jesus Christ. That's what God brought into the world. Now, Here's the thing you have to remember. Sometimes people say, well, why did he let him die? Maybe God saw some suffering that was coming in his life that he just didn't want him to go through. We selfishly want them to live forever, even if they're suffering. God's saying, I got a home waiting on them where they'll be perfect and not be sick. I got a home waiting on them where I can love and embrace them and they can learn all things and wait on you to be with them. I'm doing this because they're sick and what's coming down the road is much worse. We don't know that. Sometimes we say, well, what if they didn't believe? Listen, God is so merciful that if the last breath you utter or the last thought through your mind is, I'm sorry, I trust you, Lord, he's going to take him into heaven. Look at the thief on the cross. Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And he said, today you will be with me in paradise. No repentance, no works, no penance. I believe here you are. That's how gracious God is. So we shouldn't be questioning about death. Here's the thing is, as people, no one wants someone controlling every aspect of their life because we love choice. So we do things the way we want, and when it flops on us, we blame God. This is what James is talking about. It's an unfair and it's a foolish way of thinking, and it never ends the way we think. And I'm done about that. Okay, now let's move on. Uh, verse 4. Because next, James wants to discuss the material worldly priorities that believers often adopt. So it says, you adulteresses, remember that, underscore that if you're following along. You do not know that, uh, or do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself what? An enemy of God. Ouch. 
when you think about that. Ouch. Okay, so the first thing I want to discuss is how James called his readers adulteresses. And it means exactly what it says, adulteresses. It's from the Greek word moikolis, and it means unfaithful. That's what it means, unfaithful. So he's calling them unfaithful. And James said that some of these Jewish believers were being unfaithful or cheating on God. That's what he was saying. You are cheating on God. So who were they being unfaithful to or cheating with? They were being unfaithful to God, and the mistress they were cheating with was the world. The relationship was broken. They were being unfaithful to God, and the mistress that they put over God was the world. So in other words, they were loving and desiring worldly things more than they were loving and desiring God. And that's why he called them adulteresses. And I love this. He says, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Now, before we move on, understand it's not saying you walk around hating everybody in the world. That's not what he's saying. Just don't prefer the world over God. Right? So in the Greek, hostility is ekthra, and it means act like an enemy or act hostile. So befriending the world or choosing the world over God God sees that as an act of hostility toward him. I equate that with being caught uh, sharing military secrets with the enemy. That doesn't end well either. That's the way this is written. James also reminded them that they can't be a friend of God's number one enemy. They can't. That can't happen. James 4b, look at this. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself what? An enemy of God. So James said, by befriending God's enemy, you make yourself also an enemy of God. Does that mean you're not saved? No, it just means that you put yourself in an opposing position to God, and it's not a good place to be. The word enemy in the Greek is ekthros, and it means in opposition with. When you are friends with the world, you put yourself in opposition to God. So basically, it's like befriending Satan and challenging God while you're doing it. That's what he was saying. Okay, I told you this is a whooping. None of you guys are going to go home and say, I feel great, but here it is. Now, James goes into more depth about how God views infidelity in verses 5 and 6. He says, Or do you not think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. But He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what James was doing here was he was paraphrasing Exodus 25, the first part there. In Exodus 25a, it says, You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am what? A jealous God. Now, I know what you're thinking. I thought jealousy was wrong. Stick with me. The jealousy God has for his people is not like the sinful human jealousy, right? In Hebrew, jealousy, uh, as it's used here, is the word kwane. And kwane means to zealously desire exclusive service or dedication. So what he's saying is, he put a piece of him in you, and you're taking a piece of him out somewhere else and leaving him. He desires the part of him he put in you and you with it. That's what it's talking about. He desires to be with us. He desires it. The Holy Spirit lives in every believer and witnesses all of our infidelities against God. And as a result, it angers God. It angers God to see that because he loved us enough to sacrifice his only son so that we could have eternal life free of charge with our sins paid in full without works. And he loved us enough to give us a piece of himself to be inside of us and to guide us and to comfort us. And what do we do? We take those gifts and cheat on them. That's what James was saying. So selling God out for the world with the Holy Spirit being inside you is like cheating on your spouse with your spouse right beside you. Anybody want to try that one? If you do, your wife is not as tough as mine, right? That's exactly what it's like. But 
make no mistake, those who will confess their infidelity, they will be forgiven, and all those who do, who don't, will just be disciplined. Now, I love his solution, and his solution is surrender. Let's look at this, James 4, 7. This is the end of it. He says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and what? He will flee from you. And draw near to God, and he will what? Draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-minded means you're saying you're a believer, but not living like one. Uh, verse 9, be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. When you read that, you're like, wow, that's, that sounds really nasty, doesn't it? He's saying, be miserable, mourn, but let me explain this to you. Okay, first and foremost, submit to God's sovereignty and surrender your will to his will. That's the first step. Second step, we do this by resisting the devil's worldly temptations and getting closer to God. You know when you're being tempted. When you resist those and trust God, that's the next step. When you get closer to God, the closer you get to God and the less attention you pay to the world, the less attention the world's propaganda will affect you with. And there is a ton of propaganda in this world. So basically, and this is going to make some people mad, but you know, I won't charge you for it. Basically, pay less attention to popular culture. I'm so sick of hearing people talking about what's going on in celebrities' lives. I don't care. Just putting it out there, okay? Right? Uh, pay less attention to popular culture. Pay less attention to social media. We don't need to look at you. Why do people have to post their every waking thought? You guys notice that? There is no privacy, and half of what they post, I don't even think they care about themselves. They're just bored. I'm eating. Well, thanks. Show me a picture. I'm bored to death over here. You know what I mean? Stop paying so much attention to social media. Those are highlight reels of people's lives, and the thing they're going to sell you on them are usually a ripoff. So I'm just going to let that go. I could preach on that forever. All right? Stop worshiping actors, YouTubers, TikTokers, musicians, politicians, sports personalities. Right? I don't understand why we worship people like that. The devil loves it when we're devoted to those people. Because here's the thing that's funny. He loves it because... We're devoted to someone who wouldn't pour their latte on us if we were on fire. You know what I mean? And yet we're devoted to them, and God gave his only son, and we're not devoted to him. The devil's like, I can't believe how dumb these people are. They're so easy to distract, right? Instead, we should just focus our time on Jesus. Focus our time on the Lord, because when our time comes, and it will come, I never worry about what people say about God. I don't worry about it. I tell them the truth. They don't want to believe it. Their problem. You know, I love them enough, I'll tell them as many times as they want to hear it. But the day will come, whether you like it, whether you believe it, the day will come where you will stand before God. The biggest Satanist in the world is going to stand before God. Everybody's going to stand before God. And you know what? YouTubers won't be there to save you. You know what I mean? TikTokers won't be there to save you. You won't be able, you won't be able to post on Facebook, help, I'm in trouble, because <laughs> nobody's going to hear it. One day you will stand before God and you will give an answer. And all the things you worshipped on earth will mean nothing then. And that's what James is trying to get through their head. And what James said in 8, 10, uh, or 8 uh, B through verse 10 seems harsh, but it's really just the truth hurts part of this message. You know, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded, be miserable, mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So James is actually saying that we should realize we've been stained by the world and that should bother us. And that realization should sadden us. That turns our, our joy to sadness. We should realize that we've been stained by the world, and that should make us sad, right? We laughed while enjoying Satan's distractions, right? And now he was pulling us from God. We realized he was just pulling us from God. We were allowing him to trick us. So basically, he's saying, you need to wake up. 
while you still have time. Realize that you've been deceived. Come back to God and humbly say, I was wrong. I was wrong. I got distracted. I didn't trust you like I should. Forgive me. And you know what's beautiful? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. And once again, he will allow us to use, he'll, he'll use us to actually, you know, positively impact people's lives again. God is very forgiving. So today, before I close, I want to challenge each of you to evaluate your priorities. Do what James was telling these people to do. Take an internal look. Stop talking about being a victim. Think of all the battles and arguments you're having, all the people you're mad at, and stop being a victim. If you're angry, look inside yourself and say, why? And if you find that there is anything in your heart that's more important than God, you need to make some changes. Anything in your heart more important than God, make some changes. Because the source of your struggles on this earth are the distance from you and God. That's the source of your struggles. That's what James was trying to teach him. I'm going to go ahead and close there. I'm going to ask you to please bow your head. If this is your first time, we always like to give an invitation. Now, I don't have people come up front and stuff like that. We don't do that. But we do want to pray for you. And, you know, when the Word of God is taught, it speaks to us, eats differently, according to the need. And if you're not sure where you stand or you just need prayer, make eye contact, bless those people. Put your head right down, bless those people, and I'll pray for you. And I do pray for those people, bless those people. Because I've been there. And sometimes you guys don't see it, but my hand is up in my heart. Bless those people. I'll be praying for you. If you're you're watching online or listening online, I'll be praying for you. Believers, the book of James is truth that hurts, but it's also truth that heals. He's trying to teach us to be the kind of people God can bless and bless others with. He's not trying to be mean. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the love and grace you've shown us. We thank you, God, that knowing who we were, knowing that we would never be good enough, knowing that we could never earn heaven. You loved us so much that you took all the work out of the way. You sent your son to die on that cross innocently to pay our sin debt in full so that all we'd have to do is believe in what he did as the guarantee of our eternal life, and your word promises we'll have it. We thank you for that, Lord. We know you never promised us we wouldn't have problems. We know you never promised us we wouldn't experience loss or struggle. But you did promise us that if we will lean on you, you'll walk us through it. You did promise us that if all else, when we leave this world, we know we have the promise of being with you for eternity. And we just thank you that you love us that much. So if someone makes that decision today, I pray they contact us. But God, for those of us who are believers, I just pray that we look around us and see how things are going crazy. If there's ever been a time we need to be serious about our faith, if there's ever been a time we need to be an influence and an impact, it's now. Give us the passion and the excitement we have the day we believe. And let us change those around us with the love that you put inside of us. We just thank you, God, for all that you do. We ask you to go with us and keep us safe as we leave here. And if you don't return before we get the opportunity to come together again, we just pray we come together and give you all the praise, honor, and glory. You're so worthy of it at least one more time. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.